Welcome to the 210th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tovel. And we have an awesome and very industrial show for you today. We are going to be talking about a bunch of news coming out of Hanover Messe, which is an industrial, I was going to say an industrial automation is probably an industrial conference in Germany. We're going to be talking about the Open Industry 4.0 Alliance. We're going to be talking about Walmart allowing voice ordering with Google Assistant. Amazon has a new drone patent. Google may have a new home hub device. And we're going to talk about surveillance in smart cities. And we're going to hear from Software AG about connected factories. And we're going to hear from our guest, Keith Kirkland, who is from WearWorks. We're going to be talking about haptic feedback and haptic instructions. This is a super fun interview. I really enjoyed it. So stay tuned for all of this. But first, a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is IoT World. You and you and you are invited to IoT World. It is the intersection of IoT innovation and industries. It's held May 14th through 17th at the Santa Clara Convention Center in Silicon Valley, and it's celebrating its sixth anniversary. This year, IoT World will welcome over 12,500 IoT professionals, 400 speakers, and 300 exhibitors and startups. You can go to connect with strategists, technologists, developers, and implementers to put IoT into action within key industry verticals. To learn more and to register to attend, visit iotworldevent.com. Okay, this week I am in Stockholm. Last week was Helsinki, this week is Stockholm. So much fun. I should be, though, in Hanover. I actually tried, but it's too hard to get a ticket. It was crazy expensive, and then flights were sold out, and hotels were sold out. It was impossible. I never realized how big Hanover Messe is. Oh, man, it's actually like 250,000 attendees. Yes, it's bigger yes. than CES. And it is crazy. And this, actually, in the last five or so years, we've seen more and more IT companies going to CES and really ramping up their presences there. Starting probably, actually, it was 2014, 2015. But in 2016, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella actually gave a keynote and was talking there. This year, we saw the biggest trends coming out of this were probably 5G and then industrial automation. And this isn't just because I care about these things. It's because those are the hottest things. Qualcomm was a big vendor this year. They did a whole 5G pavilion where they set up a 5G network and had several companies using that network for things like an autonomous vehicle that was remotely operated. I know autonomous vehicles and remote operators, what is happening? It's basically when the autonomous vehicle doesn't know what to do, a remote operator takes over. <laughs> but that was operating over a 5G network. They also It wasn't a 5GE network, right? No, it was a true 5G network. This was a test okay. network, not a I mean, it's you, know, you and I couldn't bring our 5G-capable phones, which those exist now, right? I know they've been they, shown. I don't know if they're actually being sold. <laughs> yes, yes. I know Samsung has a 5G phone that they've announced and shown. I don't think you can buy any of these true 5G phones yet. Yeah, but we don't care because this is industrial no. IoT. So we saw video transfers over 5G networks. So this is HD video. We saw machine control. So lots of robot arms. KUKA was showing some stuff with their robot arms for wireless control of them. And we also saw stuff from Bosch, ABB, basically all the big names at Industrial IoT or at Robotics, too. Except for your name. Except for my name, which I wouldn't expect because I wasn't there next year. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to book early so I can actually get my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so... Some things that happen, though, that are worth mentioning for everyone to know about, actually, is Microsoft and the BMW Group, they launched something called the Open Manufacturing Program. And you guys might be like, blah, blah, I don't care. But you should. And here's why. 
this is an open standard that Microsoft and BMW are creating. It will also work with the reference frameworks from a different standards group called Industry 4.0, which is a big European standards group for this. The open manufacturing platform, they're trying to create a smart factory platform that ties back to Microsoft Azure. And it's basically reference designs that BMW is contributing to this platform. And what's important here is these quote unquote open platforms are really reference architectures and they're reference architectures that use particular solutions. So particular software, particular cloud backends, and they make it really easy. This is not an open effort in the sense that they're creating a standard that makes it easy to like move from cloud to cloud or get data from different machines in different places. This is, I'm just going to say, it's a lot of marketing hype. It is valuable Mm. because a lot of these companies do not have the expertise in pulling together IT solutions. So they can just go and pick up a reference design and their world is better. Right. Yes. And this is actually related to something that was in your newsletter last week. Prior to Hanover Messe, Microsoft announced a bunch of Azure for industrial IoT advancements with their Security Center for IoT, Azure Sentinel, Azure IoT Hub. And ironically, also in the newsletter, a very similar announcement was made, but not with Microsoft. It was Volkswagen teaming up with Amazon for AWS IoT services. And Amazon's going to power Volkswagen's industrial cloud to integrate like 30,000 facilities and 1,500 suppliers. So it's like everybody's trying to aggregate their production now with uh, IoT in the cloud. So it, it seems like the fight is on between these big cloud companies. Yes. And I will say that Microsoft has been way ahead of Amazon and Google. I don't even think they can see Google's cloud in their rearview mirror. But Microsoft has really done a lot of work packaging and handholding solutions for industrial customers. And it shows because they are by far and away the number one cloud provider for these companies. And they're basically just digging in and offering more and more features. They've taken a page from AWS in the terms of saying, hey, what are people building? Oh, we should offer that as a particular feature. And in really repackaging things in very, very good, easy to implement ways for different industry verticals. So I want to give them props here. Mm-hmm. It's it's a big deal. Amazon's less awesome at that, but I think they're going to get more awesome. And I would say also Amazon has the developer base. That means people can't ignore it. There are plenty of developers who are working within Amazon to build IoT solutions. And instead of working from a particular reference framework that people have designed, they're just like, ah, we'll make it ourselves. and And that's what they've done. So that's kind of maybe the battle to look at is developers versus prepackaged solutions that big giant corporations feel comfortable buying. So there's also the Open Industry 4.0 Alliance was announced. And this is a group of European companies, including KUKA, the robotics manufacturer, and SAP. And they are basically trying to build an operating system and an open operating system ecosystem for connected robots and connected processing. This is not new. There's a bunch of efforts like this. They're usually (laughs) vendor specific. But here, what they've done is they've created a network of a couple different suppliers. Again, putting the word open in your name, putting the word alliance does not necessarily mean that it is open and that everyone can use it or everyone would want to use it. There's always the danger of lock-in here. There is a definite trend we're seeing happen here, which is probably 20 years ago when you were in the IT world, you saw these things proliferate as well. And then with the launch of virtualization and services like AWS, we actually saw that whole underlying kind of computing architecture and even solution base get kind of People developed APIs, people developed platforms and services that made it a lot easier to create offerings from different vendors and and to pull them all together in a way that lets you pick and choose a little bit more easily and worry less about lock-in. There's still lock-in, but theoretically, you could get around it with, I don't know, less stress. Is that fair? (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. These days, the big companies are, it's not that they're ignoring standards, but they're just creating their own I think, or maybe in parallel with existing standards, but it is a different world in IT and IoT than it was 20 years ago, for sure. 
IoT will mature. It's just less mature as it stands now so that it makes sense what we're seeing. Okay, so we talked about 5G, we talked about various open platforms. And the other thing, this is kind of a tangent with 5G, but I did want to mention this. Wireless is also a big trend. And it may not be 5G, it might be proprietary wireless, but we are seeing a lot of companies creating either private 5G or private proprietary networks for the industrial IoT. And this is new because historically, factory environments are really crappy for wireless. There are lots of metal objects running around. There are lots of security concerns about someone being able to talk to a robotic arm and use it for ill. And there are latency issues. So 5G will address some of this. Other wireless standards have already happened to address this, but we're going to see more and more factories go to wireless. And like I said in my newsletter last week, that actually opens up a lot of interesting opportunities around agility in the factory floor and the ability to customize things, customize manufacturing processes for different products and move things about. So I think it's going to be kind of cool. That was a lot. (laughs) It's a big show. It's a big show. We just summarized like all of it very sort of quickly. Let's move away from Hanover, Germany and into news from Walmart. Yeah, Walmart. So I think before this news that we're about to talk about, um, I think you could voice order things from Walmart, possibly through Google Express, which is not something I use. But now Walmart is introducing what they call Walmart voice order. So they have integrated, they're saying they're going to integrate across platforms with multiple partners, but the first one is Google. And basically, you will be able to order things or put things in your Walmart shopping cart through your Google Home devices and the Google Assistant. And then the theory is you do that over the course of a couple of days, perhaps. And then you say, okay, I'm ready to check out now. And you're good to go. You purchase all your items. So this isn't quite new. I think it's more of a revamp or a refocus. Well, they're making it a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. So with you could do reordering through Google Express with Walmart. So you could voice reorder products. It went through the Google Express platform on your Google Home. And now basically, this is a better integration on the home. It's not through Google Express. And it has that as you just were talking about this ability to learn from your purchase history. Yes. So yep. So it's rolling out slowly, but rolling out now. So you should see something come to your Google Assistant with Walmart, I would say, in the next coming weeks. Yeah, I think this will be interesting to watch. And very, I don't actually do a lot of voice ordering on the Amazon because... Very few people do. That's the thing. When you look at all these reports and charts that come out every quarter, voice ordering, voice shopping is still very low on the list of activities. Well, and and the reason why is I will tell it to reorder, like a good option would be my ARC. I I get these dog toothbrush bones, basically, for my dog, and I order them all the time. I have a virtual dash button. So I would like to be able to like Amazon reorder this. But on Amazon, there's like four different prices for the same size product. Yes. Sometimes it defaults to the highest price, sometimes it doesn't, but I don't feel comfortable doing that, right? And then the other thing is I have to say the product name exactly perfectly every time. This particular partnership addresses both of those concerns. One, it learns what I'm actually ordering. And two, my hope is that Walmart only has one price for these items. So if I like this price, I can just be like, yes, I don't have to double check among like a couple. Right. And price comparisons using voice is not ideal in my experience. No, it's terrible because you can't even tell by the cheapest because on Amazon, it might be like, okay, then you'll get it in seven weeks or you (laughs) you won't get exactly what you want. Anyway, so that's good. Amazon, though, does have kind of a fun patent that we should talk about. They do have a fun patent. And we spoke about drone deliveries. I believe it was in Australia a couple weeks ago on the show. And people were a little upset because the drone noise for the deliveries was basically causing issues with pets. And I've seen that before with my dog because these drones emit ultrasonic frequencies that we can't hear, but animals can. And then there's just the regular drone noise that's kind of a buzz and annoying to all of us. So Amazon filed for a patent back in 2016, but was just granted it this week. And it should address the 
drone noise problem to a large extent if they ever implement it. The idea is that their delivery drones would have an inflatable balloon in them and the drone will take off with your product from the warehouse. It will come to your house, but then the balloon will inflate and that's the mechanism that the drone will descend with. So you won't hear the drone noise because it won't be using its propellers at that point. It would be using the balloon to come down. And then the balloon would reinflate to go make the drone go back up. So I, I presume there's some helium tank in this drone to refill the balloon. But it's rather interesting. It's a clever solution to a real problem. I imagine it's not helium. Helium is actually, I, I imagine it's heat. Wouldn't it just be, well, I don't know. I don't know. It has to be uh, something lighter than typical air. It has to be enough of it to carry enough weight. So I don't know. We're very concerned about our helium supplies now. Though. Yeah. I mm, Questions. This is where a little bit of knowledge does you very little good. Yeah. I'm all for that. I hate the sound of drones. It's a, it <laughs> is annoying. You, Kevin, have discovered something interesting. Oh, before we get to should we talk about your discovery first or should we talk about the other people's discovery? Let's talk about the other people's discovery. These are very related items. So earlier this week, Android police noticed that on the Google storefront, the online storefront in their connected devices area, they were showing something called the Nest Hub Max, which obviously has not been announced or we would have been talking about it. Uh, this is supposed to be, according to the images and what was leaked on the storefront, it's no longer there, obviously. This is supposed to be a 10-inch smart display with a Nest camera. So you would not only be able to make video calls with Duo on the Nest Hub Max, but then you could keep an eye on things at home with the built-in Nest Cam and get your motion and sound alerts. It also is supposed to have stereo speakers, so something, I guess, I guess something similar to our Google Home Hubs, the little seven inch smart display and the Google, uh, what's the speaker? The Google Home Max? Oh, yes. The Google Home Max is the speaker. The big speaker. The big speaker, like the $400 speaker. Yes. It sounds like a combination of those two products if it's legit. And considering it was actually on Google's site, yeah, I think somebody hit the publish this page button a little too soon. So we don't know anything else about it, but presumably if it's real, really coming to market, I'm thinking IO next month. That's a good time to make that announcement. And then also on its website, although maybe a little <laughs> more clandestine, Kevin, you did some digging yes. and discovered... I discovered many, many references to a, I'll call it a board, not a device, because Google names all of the boards for its products, not the devices. The, the code name for a board was spotted in the Chromium commit log, which is open source. Uh, that's why it's all available to the public. It's where I find out all the Chromebook news. The name of the board is called Mistral. And, and to clarify, we should say, so mm -hmm. when Kevin says board, most of you know this, but if you don't, it is a collection of, it is a physical board with chips on it that is used, you slot that into a product and connect all the connectors and then poof, you have a computer or a smart display or a thermostat or whatever. For whatever it might be. Correct. Correct. So Mistral has uh, many code references to the recently announced Qualcomm QCS 400 SOCs. And why is that important or relevant? Well, that is Qualcomm's new AI-enabled SOC for smart speakers and digital assistants and AV receivers. And it has mesh Wi-Fi capabilities, Bluetooth LE mesh capabilities, the on-device voice recognition, as well as a Zigbee radio. So... I kind of put two and two and two together, and it looks to me like all these code references indicate Google's working on a new either smart display or smart speaker or both, uh, because one of the chips has a GPU that Qualcomm has created. One of them does not, so they could go either way here. And I think, at least it looks to me, Google's combining its Google Home products and possibly a Google Wi-Fi product, which is something I had said they should do. And also, it's likely, or at least possible, that this could actually be a true hub, a tri-radio hub with Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and Zigbee. So lots of unknowns here, but I do know they're working actively on a product. 
Will we see it? I don't know. Will it be what I think it is? Again, I don't know, but it is definitely something to look forward to. I do not think this would be in time for next month's Google I.O. I think this would be more of a fall announcement with their typical Pixel products that they do roughly September, October. Got it. And with a Zigbee radio, a couple things. One, Amazon has their Echo Plus, which combines a tri-band radio, so Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and Zigbee, for smart home control. It does not act as a Wi-Fi router, but Correct. You know, it did by Eero, so maybe that's coming. But two, on the Zigbee front, the Zigbee radio standard could also be Thread, because they both use the same underlying IEEE protocol for their radio. So is that's this, a good point. Yeah. Is this a defined, predefined Zigbee, or could it be possibly Thread? Does it, or is it just 802.15.4? That's a good question. And just the fact that there is a Zigbee radio on this SOC doesn't mean they'll use it. That's true. There was a Zigbee radio in the Google Wi-Fi exactly. device, and they never implemented it. So Exactly. That is true. Um, by the way, and, and this is just a little, I don't know, maybe this will be on Jeopardy someday. Do you know what a mistral is? No. A mistral. Is it a bird? Mistral, I don't no, it's a strong, cold, northwesterly wind that blows through southern France, mainly in winter. Why do I bring that up? Because the code name of the board in Google Wi-Fi is Gale, G-A-L-E. Oh, Wi-Fi with the wind theme. I like yes. it. Yes. Yes. I wish I anyway. knew more about regional winds. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good at parties too, people. And that's all I know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But okay. There's a theme there. We'll see if we see any cool Google home hubs. It's good news because I do think we need to see continuing innovation in this area. And let us move on to something we probably don't talk enough about, which is surveillance. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean to make my voice sound all robotic y, but I kind of did. So, The Intercept published a story about Sidewalk Labs, which is one of Alphabet's independent companies doing smart cities efforts. And they actually have a program called Replica. They're offering to cities that shows like basically how users are using city streets and where they're moving around and that sort of thing. What's noteworthy is the cities don't actually know where this data is coming from. They speculate it is from cell phone data. They're probably right. And this relates back to Foursquare, which showed off a product. It was a concept product at South by Southwest that let you see hotspots in the city of Austin based on people's location around town and their cell phone locations. What they were doing is Foursquare provides location infrastructure for apps like Twitter and Uber. So everybody's phone that has those apps on it basically is checking into it. They're not actively checking into Foursquare, but Foursquare knows where they are. And so they were trying to aggregate that data. So if you were a single person moving around, it wasn't showing that data. But if someone and a bunch of people were at a place, it would show like, oh, there's a lot of people right here. And that sounds kind of like what Sidewalks Labs is offering folks with Replica. Now, this is where it gets dicey. Like, are we okay with this data being used in an aggregated form? I would say yes, as long as it doesn't, they don't, I would like them not to track. I know they're tracking. As long as Mm -hmm. they don't show individual paths of movement. Or, I mean, you can get a lot of personal information just from your device. I don't mean the personal data like your email and such, I mean specific device identifiers that are tied to maybe your cell phone account, for example. So they have to be very careful about what data they collect here. Yes, it should all be aggregated when they're showing it. Because and this brings me back to like Strava and its heat map. Remember like a year or two ago when they published their heat map and you could see all Strava users were sharing location data, which was turned on by default. You could see like, oh, hey, there's like a couple people using this app running around in the middle of nowhere in the desert. Then people were like, oh, that's a U.S. Army base. Oh, secret operations. <laughs> you have to implement something. So if there are fewer than, you know, 100 or I don't know what the number is, a certain number of people in a location, you shouldn't show it. 
outliers shouldn't be shown. You shouldn't be able to track one person's path through the day. And as these things become more useful, and I would say they are useful. That's the other thing. They are. I think they are. I mean, if, if I want to know how many people are at my favorite restaurant right now, if it's, is it busy right now or not? This is the kind of information that would tell me that. Right. And Google actually offers this with Google Live Views when you like search a restaurant in a location on your phone. You can actually yep. see like, ooh, super busy. Now, the other thing is it would be nice for, again, city leaders to have access to this data for people. Like if you're looking at an emergency room, it would be really useful to see like, paths of people in aggregate at places. So people tracking is actually a really important thing we need. It's just very difficult to do. A lot of places are trying to do it with sensors mounted on like doorways and that sort of thing. That's tough. So is this awesome? Yeah. It's all in how it's implemented, I think. Yeah. I mean, Google could have a really important data product to sell. I mean, you could even use cell phones as a means to detect I mean, Waze does it as a means to detect traffic, right? You could use yes. that to, you could sell that data to like companies for occupancy information. Again, depending on how it's used. So yes. I have a very serious question okay. about this. Does anybody use Foursquare anymore? You don't have to. <laughs> Your apps are. <laughs> no, I know. Are, are in, the, on, in the background, yeah. I know a lot of apps do this. Yes. So, so it doesn't, that's, that's kind of the secret. People don't realize necessarily. You realize it when Twitter puts your location under your tweets, right? Or maybe you don't notice that and suddenly you do it and you're like, ah, I don't oh, want yeah. that. No, oh, I notice. I notice. <laughs> yeah, I look for that actually. And like, but you know, if you're using Uber, Uber has to know where you are and it's not magic. Now, the fact that it's running all the time in the background, that's kind of, that could be disclosed better. And actually there was, this is a little bit different, but there was an essay this week in the New York Times about cell phone companies selling this data and people being upset. Now, I don't know if that should go up to the application level. So the cell phone companies, they're providing the the physical hardware. Should your applications be able to sell this data if your cell provider isn't? I don't know. I'd rather see it at the app level because consumers have more control in terms of permissions and, and so on. Just aggregated data that the carriers have. I don't care that they sold me my device. I'm paying for the device. It's my device. I don't really want them getting into this space personally. Got it. And I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. But that's also because, yeah. well, now I don't trust anybody. Okay. <laughs> so. She doesn't even share her location with me. I don't. You don't know where no. I am. Actually, y'all do know where I am. I'm in Stockholm. Okay. So last week on the Internet of Things podcast hotline, we had a question about how you can use Madam A to control automated blinds because there isn't currently like a really awesome blind function in, I think this person was using the Wink hub. So correct. Kevin and I, we gave an answer, but it really wasn't a full answer. And you guys were like, oh, you guys didn't tell them there are options. Part of this was because I wanted to test it out at home and I wasn't sure what I could do from here. But everyone pointed out that they can do this with Ift and with Stringify. Stringify is a company that Comcast bought, and you can still download it. It's free. It's very complex to use if you are not. It's a learning curve. But several people gave us the instructions, so we're going to share those now with you. But before I do that, I have to tell you that the Internet of Things podcast hotline is sponsored by Afero. With the fifth largest IoT patent portfolio in the world, Afero provides a proven IoT platform that doesn't risk your brand. Afero customers have experienced as much as an 80% reduction in time to market and 10x higher activation rates. Learn more at afero.io. You can call us on the IoT Podcast hotline at 512-623-7424. And if you are feeling especially nerdy this month's prize, you're going to love it. It is a Connect IO board. <laughs> and the board, basically, you plug it into your existing wired alarm system, and then you can control it through the SmartThings hub. So this is kind of a limited use case, but you're going to like it because it lets you use your old wired alarm systems and lets you talk to it through SmartThings. So that's this. And there are, people, there are people looking for that product because we get calls on that. How do I extend my old wired security system to make it wireless? So 
It's perfect for that. Yay. All right. So that is going to be April's prize. And to be entered to win, you just need to call us at 512-623-7424. Leave us a question. And we may answer it, but you will be entered to win the Connect.io board. While we're at it, and before we get to this answer for you, we should announce March's winner who doesn't have a name. So, Well, he does. He just didn't provide it. But that's okay because we can text him and get his information. Yes. So we did choose a winner. You'll be winning a Schlage Connect lock. And no name. Thanks for listening. Thanks for leaving a message. And you'll be hearing from us. Okay. So let's get back to how this thing works. The original question was about a Z-Wave motor from Graber. And that was uh, to raise and lower smart blinds. And Wink can do that. However, Madam A cannot understand or do that for you through Wink. However, if you create a shortcut in Wink to raise or lower your blinds, so say two shortcuts, you can then connect Madam A with Wink through Ift, create a recipe that says, hey, when I say this to Madam A, run this Wink shortcut. So that's the way to link those because you can't do it natively. Got it. And on the Stringify side, and this is going to be much, much more difficult. So first off, Stringify needs to see the blinds. Then you create a flow. So once you've got Stringify able to see the blinds, usually you can do that in Wink or SmartThings or however, then you basically create a Stringify flow and you include it as a scene. You create a scene and you have that flow tied to a Madam A command. You can also actually use it for a Google Home command too. And then you can, through the scene, you'll say, Madam A, start blah, blah, blah. You may have to say, ask Stringify to start. I think I say, ask Stringify to run, blah, blah, blah. And then it will do so. So that is how you would do that on Stringify. And remember, both Ift and Stringify are free. And just to be clear, this is Wink specific because the caller had Wink and the Graber smart blind motor. For smart things, you can actually do this natively with, um, I believe there's a device handler, or you can change your blinds in Stringify to be to act like a dimmer switch. Yes, you could do that too. So lots of options for our caller last week. We are sorry that we just didn't do a good job. So, And props to our listeners. Uh, we got several emails and voicemails on exactly what we just explained with Ift and Stringify. So we didn't give a complete answer because as Stacey said, she really wanted to test it before we actually could say, yeah, this will work. But I haven't been home in two weeks. So it's, exactly. it's very difficult. This is the downside. I would know that if you shared your location with me. Ah, never going to happen. <laughs> All right. So that concludes the news portion of this week's podcast. And stay tuned for a conversation with Keith Kirkland from WearWorks. His company is building a device to help visually impaired people wayfind using haptics. And we talk about that particular product, but we also talk about how we should be using haptics and tips for designers on building haptic feedback into their devices and products. You're going to like it, I promise. And now, A message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Software AG. Hey everyone, we're taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Software AG, and I have Bruce Kane, who is part of the Software AG IoT team. So first, let's kick it off with telling people, what is Software AG doing with the Internet of Things? Software AG is a 50-year-old software company. Our bread and butter is with integration software. So we allow companies to talk to each other. Specifically in the Internet of Things, we have Cumulosity IoT platform. So the Cumulosity platform is a full IoT platform that can be run at the edge as well as in the cloud. And that's very important because now we can do a lot more work at the edge than just up in the cloud. Excellent. And edge computing is all the rage these days. And I understand that you have a great story involving robots that can really underscore the importance of edge computing. Can you share? Absolutely. So the way we get our cars painted when you buy a new car is a robot comes in and does all the painting. No more humans. The great thing about this is that the robot can analyze how it's painting, how fast the arm is moving. So you get a perfect paint job each time. The downside, though, is that it takes a lot of data 
to make that happen. The other side is we as consumers are a lot more particular than we used to be. And we look for every little defect. If there's one tiny blemish in my paint, I don't want that car. I want another one. So because of that, the paint jobs have to be perfect. There's a lot that goes into a perfect paint job. And that's not just the paint and the air mixture, but also the humidity the the surroundings, the temperature. There's an awful lot of data that needs to be consumed by these robots in order for them to paint properly. In the past, they would send that data up to the cloud. The cloud would do the analytics and decide, gee, it's getting a little more humid, so let's put a little more paint to air mixture and would do those adjustments, send the command down, the adjustment would be made and it would continue to paint. The problem is you'd be on the third pass before you got that information. So the robot needed that data at the edge. So Cumulosity IoT being installed at the edge, running all this analytics at the edge, removed that latency time from sending that data up to the cloud. They're able to do much better paint jobs, less blemishes, which means less redos or less cost to the manufacturer. Excellent. So if I wanted to experiment with Software AG's Cumulosity platform, where could I go to find out more? Yes, you can download a trial at softwareag.com slash IoT now. And I really encourage you to do so because you can connect a device in less than two minutes, create some analytics in less than a minute and a half, create dashboards in less than 90 seconds. So in less than five minutes, you can be experimenting with your devices connected to an IoT platform. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Keith Kirkland, and he is the co-founder of WearWorks, and we are going to be talking today about haptics. Hi Keith, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, how are you? Man, I am super excited. I love haptics, and for everybody who's like going, what? It's basically using vibration to like indicate to you it's touch. It's basically touch to indicate something to you. I really want it to tell me my right from my left because I'm not very good at that, but we're going to explore all the ways this could happen. So first off, Keith, let's talk about what WearWorks is doing. We design products and experiences that communicate information through touch. And our first product, Wayband, is a wearable haptic navigation device for the blind and visually impaired. Basically, we figured out a way to guide people toward an end destination using vibrating cues without the need for any visual or audio cues at all. And back in 2017, we used that technology to help a runner who was blind, Simon Weecroft, run the first 15 miles of the New York City Marathon with outsider assistance. Which is awesome. And you kind of have to tell us why <laughs> only the first 15 miles. Did he get tired? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, so basically, you know, uh, the marathon, it was, it was marathon day and we were getting everything suited up. Kevin, my co-founder, also ran the race with Simon and we put all the devices and everything on them. And it turned out that the weather was really, really bad. And so it ended up raining for most of the marathon. And at about 15 miles in, um, we basically, you know, had put together the prototypes the night before and didn't think about waterproofing as much as we were thinking about trying to get them through this race. And so that was just kind of like a surprise for us. At some point, midway through, the device kind of stopped working because of the rain. That is such a bummer. But it was also like, I know. you know, well, it's a valuable life a lesson. <laughs> waterproofing is important. <laughs> Go waterproofing. All right. Customer discovery. Exactly. <laughs> so... I have been excited by haptics for a really long time. Like I said, I have a terrible sense of direction. I have always wanted my phone to like be like, go this way. Nope, not that way. Go the other way. That's my subtle haptics thing right there. And we've had it in actually phones for a while in terms of like that little vibration that you get when you touch your phone screen. That is haptic feedback. But you actually mm -hmm. got started in a way that I think is super cool for IoT in the wearables market, which was trying to build a suit to teach you Kung Fu. Can you tell me about that? I had always been a big movement learner and I had always ended up with these weird injuries that would usually stop me from doing that movement that I started to love learning how to do. And so while I was in my master's program at Pratt, I had, had a previous background in mechanical engineering and then did that for a bit. And then I decided to come back and be a shoemaker instead. And so I ended up uh, studying uh, handbag and shoe design at FIT. I worked in the industry for a while, mainly doing handbag stuff. 
spent a, a bit of time at Les Brotsack and Calvin Klein and coach. And then kind of came out of that experience was like, wow, I really love making handbags. And, but I also felt that there's a greater way to use designer for humanity. And so I went back to school to kind of get a degree in industrial design to figure out what that might be. And along the way, I ended up being studying at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, part of their global innovation design program, which that allowed me to go to Japan, which got me really interested in technology and London. And then kind of came back and was like really, really interested in this idea of like, how do I integrate technology into fashion? Because I just really miss the fashion industry so much. Kind of like how to use fashion to like do something that is really, really great. And so at the time, I was still kind of in this movement challenges that I was having. I kind of put together the pieces that was like, okay, I think it's possible for you to make a suit that can help you to learn Kung Fu, to say. And I got that suit from an insight that I had, and I thought it was totally super duper original. I was like, wow, it's like the Matrix is now. And then now, all of a sudden, I go and I do a bit of research into it, and I've realized that suit had been built at MIT called the Tickle Suit. And basically, they kind of validated all the assumptions that I had when I was thinking of the suit that I was making. And that was basically like, how do you use haptics to kind of correct for movement and posture? And so... That was kind of the premise and the idea, but the challenge in that suit was uh, once it was kind of really thought deeply through, it became really apparent is that if I want you to raise your wrist two inches off of your lap using vibration, how do I tell you to do that? How do you tell me to do that? (laughs) That was my next question for you. (laughs) So I can put a motor at the top of your wrist, right? And maybe it will feel like you should be pulled up. Or do I put one at the bottom of your wrist so it feels like you're being pushed up? That work kind of hadn't really been done yet. And there was no thing to kind of base off of like what we started to call a haptic language, a way of how can I signal to you to do information without having to tell you what to do, without having to explain it? How can it be so intuitive that you can just understand that this is what you should do in this moment? And that's kind of what we talk about haptic design, where like we're using touch in the same way that a graphical designer uses visuals to like design an experience for our users. And we're just kind of tapping into a different sense, you know, one that is kind of often overlooked in the, in the design space. I like it. This is actually something that I've read about and I've actually wanted for a while. So not Kung Fu, but I do a lot of Pilates. But as part of that, I sit there and I'm like, ooh, if I just had a little vibration here that was like, ooh, activate this muscle right here or you're doing it wrong. But then I did quickly realize that what you're talking about, this language for haptics would have to come into play. Like what is like, ooh, activate that muscle versus, oh, no, no, don't move that at all. This stay put. But you guys have kind of figured it out on the wayfinding sense. So talk to me about your haptic corridor. Yeah. So the haptic corridor is this idea. It kind of got coined through kind of our using the device and having the experience and Basically, what it is, is you can imagine if you're looking forward that, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I feel like most people have played Pac-Man or have cut out a large enough slice of pie from a fresh baked pie. Either way you look at it, you're facing forward. You're kind of like the empty space. Your Pac-Man's open mouth. You're where the missing slice of pie is. And that's the correct way to go, basically. Everything else is some basically some varying degree of wrong from that. And so what we did is we designed a 360 haptic experience that as you change orientation, the device gives you constant feedback to let you know exactly how wrong you are and whether you're getting wronger or whether you're turning more into what we consider the correct direction, which is where the device happens to be pointing you. Got it. Why choose to do it that way? I mean, my gut when thinking about communication, right, and communication through touch is like, we have to figure out this like intuitive language for haptic feedback, just like we did for like touch sensitive screens on devices where we're all now like, oh, pinch to zoom and swiping. So why go with something that's a little bit more, I don't want to say generic, maybe more basic? One of the things is, is that language acquisition is really challenging. And, you know, like I'm currently learning Swedish. I've tried learning Japanese, German, Spanish is probably my best bet so far. And, you know, it just takes a lot of time to learn a language. And so one of the things that we're really careful about while we're building this haptic language is that we need to make sure that the language acquisition time, the the time that it takes for a user to understand our experience is as short as possible. And now, so the way we've done that is we've kind of separated the language creation into two major components. So first you have your haptic experiences and haptic experiences are completely designed haptic 
experiences that deliver one piece of information that's critical to the function of the device extremely effectively and very intuitively and very quickly. In this case, it's a haptic corridor. And with a haptic corridor, we give people a device, we say, do a 360 spin, and then we tell them to spin again and to stop in a direction that they think is the right way to go. And most people can figure out within about 15 seconds, and those are the only instructions that they have. And so we had to make sure that the main function of the device could be mastered by any person that picked up the device straight out of the box. And then the second part to that is what we call haptic expressions. Haptic expressions are more like words, you know, like a haptic experience is kind of like a kiss, right? You know, like there's an immediate thing, there's an immediate reaction, it's very intuitive. And, you know, whether you like it or not, that's one thing, but, you know, like the experience and understanding that something just occurred is instantaneous, right? And then we have the haptic expressions is, here's why I kissed you, because you got an A on your paper today, son, whatever, right? The haptic expressions communicate some discrete piece of information that is important hey, left turn is coming up in 30 feet. These take a little bit more time to learn, and we're still trying to simplify these as well to make them really distinctive. The, the haptic experiences, they're more advanced features. They give you more advanced and nuanced information into the experience, and once a user understands the initial experience, the haptic experience, they can go into the expressions and get more kind of like important and significant information for their travels. But we had to design something that worked out of the box that could just be used instantaneously. It was, it was super important. Got it. So you guys are designing this for people who are blind or visually impaired, but I kind of look at this and I'm like, I wouldn't mind having this sort of feedback in my day-to-day life, especially for things like, you know, wayfinding in different office buildings or hiking trails, trying to find the actual trail as opposed to like, ooh, now I'm suddenly stuck in a ravine and I don't know how I'm getting there. So I'm curious, like, what do you need to make this happen? And then could it go beyond just the visually impaired? Initially, when we started, we were just trying to get people out of their phones and back into the real world. And so we saw all these opportunities where the screen-based devices that we were using were requiring a huge amount of our visual attention. We felt that, you know, navigation is inherently visual. And so to be able to navigate and use your vision functionally while navigating and getting the information through some other senses kind of made sense for us. And so we see kind of haptics as the next frontier. If you look at every other sense, there's $100 billion, trillion dollar industries built around them. You know, like, and with the, the immersion of AR and VR, you now have full 360, 4K, you know, high definition video. You have 3D audio. You can tell that the box dropped 20 feet behind you over your left shoulder. But then when you go to pick up that box, you still have the experience of having to pretend that there's something in your hands when there isn't. So we see kind of haptics as kind of like this coming industry that's going to start to create an impact in media and designers and in its own right. And right now, we kind of see that working with the blind and visually impaired for this first part of the experience, one, it really works to our strengths because the blind and visually impaired population, they actually have the greatest understanding of tactile acuity, the best possible customers that we could be designing for. And so we understand that like, if we can really nail that use case, then every other use case kind of follows suit behind it. And so kind of that's our plan right now. You guys have been doing this for a while. And you've learned valuable things about waterproofing, for example. But (laughs) when you mentioned like in gaming and picking up a box and that sort of thing, I'm like, ooh. Yes, please. So what are some of the things you've learned in playing with haptics as much as you guys have? I know you've built the Wayband, but you guys have also built, you've built your Kung Fu suit or tried to build part of that. And talk to me about the things you've learned that you could pass along to other designers who are like, oh yeah, haptics. I'd love to get involved in that. What do I need to know? So I think the first thing is is that you got to have a bit of understanding of physiology Different parts of the body have different resolutions to touch, you know, like your hands, your lips, your tongue are pretty amazing. You know, your back is pretty bad. And so when you're designing a haptic experience, usually it has to be pressing against some portion of the skin to be effective. And depending on what part of the body that you're designing for, it really changes kind of like the specifications of the thing that you're building. The underside of the wrist, for example, you know, is super subtle to vibration activation, even though the resolution is really low. A light touch will 
send a signal. But on your back, like that sensitivity isn't there so much. And so pay attention to what part of the body you're working with and understand the physiology kind of like of that body part that you're working with and how it responds to touch. It's kind of like a good first step. Additionally, I think the biggest thing is just to kind of go in and really have fun with it. You know, like there's so much inspiration and, you know, this world of using a different sense to kind of as a foundation for the work that you want to do and the work that you want to explore. There are these inspirations that you can kind of pull from, you know, like often fiction, but, you know, really kind of like pop culture or just anywhere to kind of see what types of things you really could be doing if you didn't have to look at it or hear it to understand it. And I think uh, just kind of being in that space, playing in that space, but also kind of like documenting kind of what your understanding is. Because right now, I think the other opportunity that's going to be in this space is that we're all trying to figure out how to make this stuff and document this stuff, right? This stuff that we're, we call haptics, that we're still figuring out. Right now, there aren't really any platforms that make it simple for these types of possibilities to be created by any designer who wants to pick it up in the same way you have a Photoshop or an Illustrator. And so it's like, I think there's a huge opportunity in the space to really explore different ways of how we're documenting this work and to share that work in some way with one another so that we can all move the industry forward like together. I like it. Quick question for you. This is a very practical question, but you know, I am a very practical person. So there's the Wayband idea. And I think looking on the, the spec sheet that is probably way out of date, it was like three hour battery life. But when I'm thinking about haptics, what does that do for battery life? What does that implementation really look like if I'm going to have a phone that communicates to a device or a device that I'm going to wear all day? For navigation purposes, it doesn't really horribly affect battery life. Vibrating motors definitely have a drain on battery. And, you know, that's pretty clear. But the thing is, is that like you're not navigating so much of the day. And so while you're out using the device, the average walk or thing is probably about like 20 to 30 minutes under. Usually at that point, people are using public transportation. You know, like within that kind of a distance, you're walking like maybe an hour a day, maybe two hours a day maximum. And so the battery life on the device lasts for days without being charged. True. That's a good point. And probably one of those tips that we should really think about, like when implementing something like this. This is really exciting. And you guys are going to do a crowdfunding campaign in August or September, correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me more about this campaign. Is it for the Wayband? So in August or September, we'll be launching our Kickstarter campaign, and we'll be delivering the very first Wayband devices to the public. And so everyone will have an opportunity to pre-order. And then based off of those, will manufacture and the goal is to deliver the product by April of 2020. So we're super excited. The team is getting everything ready and it's a big moment for us. So it's, it's been a long time in the making. It sounds like it. Okay. Well, awesome. Well, Keith, thanks for coming on the show this week and good luck to you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.